And they were looking at me like, girl, you sure? <laughs> you sure this you? And, and, and for me, I thought they were hating. You know, I thought this was sore loser time. But they're just like, girl, of course it's one. That is how fast I'm going to be in and out of your ear with this episode. Oh, to Michael Scott. If you couldn't already tell, it is Isadora minus the Phoenix because we are collectively, separately, together apart, getting our lives together and uh, tending to some of the... The thing is, even though 2020 has been a hell of a wild card, there are still things that we had to maintenance before, during, and we'll have to maintenance after. And that is our mental and emotional and physical wellness. And uh, we just find ourselves doing that right now, tending to the regular. 2020 hasn't stopped the thing. But while we're doing that, I figured I'd bring you guys some content. And what this actually is, is audio from a video that I'd recorded June of last year, actually. In the video, and I'm actually going to take a moment to discuss the visuals that you would be deprived of, actually, with this audio. And that visual was my 2007 Optima and its car knobs and dashboard and vents. Because at the time, I was... Struck well, most times I'm no paparazzi anyway, but that particular time I was going through one of my terrible, 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 terrible toothaches, and it was one of those toothaches that originate in the back but then kind of goes forward in the mouth and then feels like it's going and just disrupting things in your brain. So I did not want to show my face. So I figured since you'd have been getting a good visual of what a AutoZone poster child looks like. I would just strip it down and give you the audio. But the video's content is me reassessing something I had once touted as a major accomplishment in my young life. And that had been a written piece that had been submitted on my behalf by my advanced English teacher, my 10th grade year in high school. It had been submitted, sorry, to the Young Georgia Authors Competition. This piece I had held in high regard all the way up until my senior year of college. And even then, it was just I started writing better things and I started improving as a writer to where that story quickly went on the back burner. Nonetheless, it was something that up until last year, I hadn't seen a problem with. And the following is me finding problems imbued with that entire experience. Because there was a time where I wanted to separate the piece itself from the actual accomplishment. But they were intimately interwoven and I had to deal with the fact that they were. So stay tuned to hear me read myself and drag myself from Hades to the good place. decided that I need a whole dragging um, 
and I'm not going to show my face because uh, that is a read in and of itself. And I really want this to be a personal thing. And I don't want anybody else joining in on the session. <laughs> but um, no, I was in the shower of all places thinking about um, out of nowhere. Uh, just, you know, I wouldn't say it was out of nowhere. I uh, was listening to LeVar Burton reads as I often do in the evenings. And um, I just had a thought about storytelling. And I thought about the uh, short story that I'd submitted um, as a rising senior in high school um, for entry into college. And um, the story that I'd submitted was uh, the one that had earned me the recognition of Young Georgia author uh, my sophomore year of high school. I was really proud of that. Um, it didn't go statewide. I I think I won it for my school. And I placed second in the county. But it didn't go further than that. But I was pretty damn proud of it. As someone who um, probably questioned a lot of my intelligence back in the day, it was a, a shining moment for me. Even, you know, if it didn't go outside of the, the county. But um, there's more to that, though. There, more on that later. Um, no, so I was thinking about the story that I submitted and <laughs> the protagonist of the story was Emily Ann and Emily Ann was a white girl living, a young white girl, probably in her, um, I'm thinking, you know, late teens, early twenties. I wasn't very specific, but it was clear that she was a young maiden, um, living in colonial times in America. in the shower you know having that um stream of consciousness going from LeVar Burton to just general storytelling to thinking about my own um experiences with writing stories not really you know telling them but writing them um and I thought about the story I chose to write the point of view the perspective I chose to assume in doing that piece of all the black ass narratives that I could have imagined that might have existed during that same time period. And I'm sure it was rich, full of black narratives that I could have, I, I mean, there was a defect in the imagination there. And I told a story And might I say it was well-worded. It was as if I had lived the experience, not necessarily back in that era, but as if I had lived as a white woman in any era. And I was commended, of course, of, on how beautifully descriptive and how imaginative and how... Um, evocative of uh that era it was and it really had me going back doing like a whole sweep so um needless to say i get entry into the college of my choice uh at the time and i uh, ended up taking a african-american class 
And I will never forget this professor's name. His name was Professor Fontenot. I failed his class, um, but I will never forget this man. Um, in his class, we read books like um, Souls of Black Folks and The Miseducation of the Negro. And um, what else? Autobiographies and all of that jazz. And um, Black Face, White Mask stuff like that and um in reading w.e.b du bois um his uh souls of black folks uh, and we learned about a concept known as the double known as double consciousness and double consciousness is ex essentially existing as a black person you know or as any minority but being hyper aware of the perspectives of that majority group and and almost to um to our survival we had to develop that double consciousness in order to walk that fine line that we had you know we always had to be aware hyper aware hyper vigilant of the way the majority thought the uh their assumption of us their um their stereotypes we had to be hyper hyper aware of not only our own consciousness but i would venture to say it was more imperative to be aware of what the majority was thinking because their thoughts could mean our imminent danger most of the time so, um, in a less extreme example, thinking back on the accolades that I'd received on being able to paint that picture of Emily Ann and the things, uh, womanhood that she was discovering and wanting to go against the status quo as a young white female in colonial times, the picture that I was able to paint I would say in some part is due to this uh, double consciousness that, um, you know, just, just more than being a storyteller, but actually having felt like you have existed as this person, not in no reincarnation sense, but that you can easily assume the perspective of the majority. But traveling on from that it led me to connect why i placed second in the county granted i know it was probably because <laughs> there were uh better written better developed uh stories than mine had been and um anybody who knows me knows that it was a uh, work done out of procrastination so i don't even think that th the funny thing was it was unfinished <laughs> it was unfinished it was trash at the end but it still you know won what it won in my school and then went on to go second in the state but of course you know maybe had it been finished it'd been eligible for uh to go further but Another thing with it being second, it was just like, I'll accept that because 
I'm never going to beat anyone else telling their own story. I'm glad that it plays second. Because that's not my first experience. That is not my first perspective. Even though it's a perspective that I can assume and put on like clothes, it is not my essence. It is not my truest self. It is not my narrative. Not just because it was set in whatever time period. But simply because I am a black person, a black female. And I don't know, I haven't gotten any deeper than that, but I am definitely glad that um, although I'm relatively proud of that accomplishment, that cannot be my shining moment <laughs> because you know i need i needed i needed that reminder that you know it's 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 going to be second best because it's not it's not your best it's not you that's not your story Even since that day that I hopped on top of myself, oh, hopped on top of myself, I will say that I have grown to be a lot more understanding of where I had been mentally when writing that story. Uh, some of my earlier points still stand, but um, as a individual and having the context that I had growing up. I had to be a little bit more compromising and a little bit more forgiving of myself. And when I describe my context, you might be like, huh? You know, you're black. What you what you talking about? What you mean? How has it been anything different? It wasn't anything close to a white woman. All is true. But I will say that um, my household when I was growing up at any given time was comprised of... Um, Someone misplaced people, um, people who didn't have strong uh, affiliations. And I'm, I'm speaking both for my family, my immediate family, and uh, some of the children that we would have in our home. A lot of them, uh, because of the nature of their, their home life, didn't have any affiliations to to any particular culture either. So our home was very, or the culture of our home was very generic, very generic, very bland, very accommodating. And though I wouldn't say there that wasn't a, that, that that was a bad thing, there wasn't much in the way of identity shaping apart from. Uh, the identity that was our religion or our religious practice at the time, which <laughs> that too was a little off, you know, a, a little unorthodox in, in both ways. But there hadn't been a strong Black-centered, Black-centric, Afrocentric culture in my household. And even in my most impressionable years 
beyond my household composition, there was my schooling, the districts and everything. So uh, my elementary school uh, or my elementary years were mostly spent in Atlanta public schools and uh, DeKalb County schools. And I would say more so DeKalb County school system. So I was around people who looked like me. Granted, we'd always known that my lifestyle even then was different from most of my peers, but there were people who looked like me. And even though I knew I was black in those contexts, there was never a reason to over relate to my blackness of my own accord. So I automatically related with my womanhood, my girlhood. And I would say that was the case even even after moving from DeKalb County into Newton County, Georgia, my middle school and high school years. That remained the same because even though the demographics were definitely different from what it had been in DeKalb County, there was still enough of my people around me, still enough diversity around me, um, enough of my people around me that I didn't feel the need again to strongly identify with my blackness. I was more so strongly identifying with drama group or having advanced classes versus not. Um, club associations, friend affiliations. I was more so identifying with that as opposed to my my black heritage. I wouldn't say that I began to really, really understand the implications behind my being black. And I can say this, um, some would say I was sheltered, but I just don't think with everything that we were doing in my young life, there was really time for a real heavy hitting lesson on, on my background and where I came, come from, uh, of the heritage that I come from. So um, I didn't really get hit with the implications behind my blackness until my mom packed us up and moved us from the metro Atlanta area from Newton County up to Chickamauga, Fort Oglethorpe area, Northwest Georgia area. And I attended a school called Ridgeland High School. And my first experience with being black or experiencing the implications of my blackness was being denied entry into the AP classes that I was uh, slated to have or slated to be enrolled in at my the, the my former school, the school I left from. My grades and my performance had made it so the my next grade promotion would I, I would be taking AP classes. And the way it was set up at my former school versus the one that I was uh, transferring to was that it was a free for all. Um, if you were excellent in English and kind of questionable in math, you could take AP English and take regular or remedial math if need be. Um, science, everything like that is the same. Some, you know, were expected to be um, companions, but 
as far as uh, being required to, as was the case for the school I was transferring to, being required to have all AP classes or being enrolled in all honor classes in order to be eligible for AP classes. It was a whole different story. So what it was is that I was transferring from a school with a reasonable amount of black people, Hispanics, Asian, Latinx, all of that, into, uh, you know, Middle Eastern, all of that, into a school that was probably 80%, 80% Caucasian. And the moment I was hit with the implications and uh, not really, even at that time, wasn't really real because this was my first encounter with that, being discriminated against because of my skin tone. (laughs) I was told that I was ineligible for the honors program. And my mom was like, why? She was about to do AP at, at home back, you know, back where she came from. She was enrolled pretty much enrolled in AP courses. What do you mean she's not eligible for the honors program? So it was their criteria that I be doing good across the board and I wasn't, that I be higher achieving across the board, including all the subjects, across subjects. And I admittedly struggled with math and science for a minute, for a long while. So my grades and my performance there was not comparable to my English and my history and all of that good stuff. And at the time, because I had not been met with that type of pushback before, I... I thought it was a testament to my intelligence or or my lack of. I didn't think I was worthy. And um so they told me I wasn't eligible for honors, what they called honors academy, and consequently as a result, I was not eligible to be enrolled in AP classes, courses. I mean, Shoot, I mean, that was a whole new experience for me. So Ridgeland High School was what it was, but it was trash. There was a lot of good old boy. There was a lot of things are the way they are and that's how they're going to stay. There was a lot of consolatory prizes uh, for black students who probably qualified for top honors and awards and recognition. There were a lot of, here, here's your cookie and your ribbon. We're going to give this recognition to a white person. A lot of that going on. And a lot of these thoughts, of course, I'd had in retrospect. But, um, yeah. So, I, all, I'm saying all that to say that uh, I, I took that information, took all of that context... Um, 
it's something that I would hope someone else would understand about me and try to understand that about myself. So, you know, some would say growth. <laughs> but that is why today I give myself grace for having written that piece. Uh, like I said, there are some things that I am still trying to <laughs> trying to forgive myself for, but I have extended myself a lot more grace um, than I had previously in that in that video. Um, yeah, just recognizing that the piece was written my sophomore year in high school, and that was still when I was attending a Newton County school, which is a county that is mere miles outside of the metro Atlanta area. And uh, it was before I had had my major, major imp lasting impression worthy experience. <laughs> As a, as a black person and really understanding what that means and what I could be disqualified for and ineligible for and given the runaround about solely because of the color of my skin. So yeah. by and staying tuned uh, to my stream of consciousness and my diatribe slash shower thought slash read of self uh, as well as excusing my drooling and <laughs> uh, slushing and all of that stuff that was going on in the audio so big ups to you guys but also and always thank you for listening thank you for coming back we appreciate your listens, your likes, your shares, everything that you do that is infinite spaces related. We love it. Thank you so much for coming back. This is always experimental. We never know what we're doing, but we feel good doing it. Knowing that you guys enjoy what we do is just the cherry on top. So thank you. Uh, be sure to follow us on Instagram at infinitespaces.thepodcast. We can be found on Facebook at infinitespacesthepodcast. And if you're feeling particularly kind and sweet and are in good spirits, because it's important for you to be in good spirits when you're doing this, send some love over to our resident merrymaker, The Phoenix. And you can find him on Instagram at Warren Dumas, and that's spelled W-U-H-R-Y-N, Dumas, D-U-M-A-S. Shoot him some love, send him some comments, let him know that Isadora sent you, and he won't think it's weird at all. <laughs> and don't just stop there. I encourage you guys to check out the inspiration behind my even pulling this video slash audio out of the vault. And that is a Dear Friends feature on a podcast called You Had Me at Black. The episode she's featured on is called Radical Imagination. And it is a 
wondrous celebration of Black storytelling. My Friend's Story starts at the 5 minute 40 second mark, but I advise you to listen to the entire episode as it is full of stories of Black empowerment, Black wonderment, Black awe, and Black expression. And when you're done with that, hop on over to a tipsy monologue and find out what lyrical freedom is talking about. Always available to you are older episodes of our podcast. Relive our goofiest moments until Phoenix and I, which will be really soon, Phoenix and I get content together for you guys. In the meantime, this has been Isadora signing off of Infinite Spaces. And what's funny is after winning the Young Georgia Authors Contest for my school, some of the people that I was in an ongoing uh, friendly competition (laughs) with, uh, as far as writing and stuff goes, I allowed them to read my story and their reaction were like, they were like, girl, like, what the fuck? Of course this one. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought they were being haters. But one of the people I was in friendly competition with was uh, was a guy who uh, had a Jamaican background. And I don't even know what generation American he was or or supposed to be. But he was Jamaican as hell. And roots were strong. And same thing, a girl that I was in competition with, and she was, I I would consider her a friend as well. She was Haitian, and they were both in my class. And they both had an opportunity to read what I had written about young Emily, a young, growing, sprouting Emily. And they were looking at me like, girl, you sure? (laughs) You sure this you? And, and, And for me, I thought they were hating. You know, I thought this was sore loser time, but they're just like, girl, of course is one. <laughs> the, what? <laughs> like, you ain't got nothing better than that? You don't have anything more colorful than that? A little bit more spunky? You know, a little sassy? No, nah, they weren't saying that, but <laughs> they were looking at me like, girl, the fuck? <laughs> you, you Sambo. <laughs>